Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. My name is Sarasak Bharatwaj and in today's episode I am absolutely delighted and thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Amit George. I don't really think so requires an introduction but just in case our viewers don't know him, sir is a lawyer who graduated from Nalsar, obtained his LLM degree from University of London and he also holds a PhD from National Law University Delhi. He's an arguing counsel, an independent counsel who appears primarily before the Delhi High Court and various other tribunals. He also appears as a guest faculty to deliver lectures and seminars at various universities. In addition to all that, sir writes a very popular column at Bar and Bench where he takes us through some of the more important judgments of the Delhi High Court each month. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for taking the time out and being here with me today. I'm so happy to be speaking with you. No, thank you so much, Sathak, for having me over. And I really don't know why I am here, but thank you for the kind words and uh, thank you for considering me worthy enough to yeah share some thoughts with you. Thank you. Definitely. So, sir, to start this off, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, you went to Nalsar back in two thousand four. What was it like studying law back then? Because that was a time when national law universities were just popping up. Um, what were some of the activities you were involved in, and how did you get interested in litigation? Well, well, first, congratulations on sound making me sound really old, <laughs> which I am. <laughs> but yeah, but but that's a very invalid question because you know the the law school scene back then was very very different. I mean, just to give you one illustration, there was uh, I mean you know no uh, clat at that stage, so I remember writing multiple entrances just to see where I could get through. So yeah, so Nalsar happened, and uh, well, I would say that Nalsar also, to that extent, yes, in terms of infrastructure, it was reasonably established by then. But uh, it was still, you know, possibly I think about uh, six or seven years uh, since it had been conceptualized and set up. So therefore, it was comparatively early days, and I think that is why the, one of the fond memories which almost all of us have from Nalsar, either it's a fond memory or a horrifying memory, depending on your perception. but because we were pretty much in the middle of nowhere this village called shamirpet which was a good uh, 30 35 kilometers from hyderabad city and uh, in back in back then you did not have the orr the outer ring road which now makes it so easy to commute even to the far flung areas of hyderabad so you know it was a very interesting environment uh, sort of like a large campus in the middle of nowhere and everybody you know sort of spending five years stuck together so obviously we made some very good friendships then and even you know in terms of the academics we had some really good professors so overall i think from uh, the teaching background and also from what you learn from the peers nalsar was a very very transformative experience it was definitely a lot of fun and i think in terms of the difference well now when you have uh, when i have law students interning with me you know i think generally in terms of the presentation uh, uh, the networking you know linkedin etc it's it's, yeah. it's far more evolved now like back in our time you know internships and all were so old tech low tech <laughs> in terms of how you would uh, approach them you know make a phone call even emails were not that uh, let's say uh, you know it, it was not that ubiquitous in terms of applying to let's say individual lawyers a lot of lawyers frankly speaking didn't really look at their emails all that often so it was very low tech all of what we used to do even applying for conferences etc going around So yeah, it was a slightly different world, but the fundamentals remains the same. You know, a campus environment, what you do there, it it it's it's still the same. Right. Thanks for sharing that, sir. And after graduation, you took up the position of a judicial clerk at the Delhi High Court. 
Um, yes. Now, again, so just to conceptualize that question, clerkships these days are more and more popular. We see students actively vying for those positions. Was the situation same back when you uh, took up the position and what was your entire experience like clerking at the high court? Right. So, uh, see, uh, clerkship were, clerkships were reasonably in demand, definitely in the Supreme Court. But that was primarily from the perspective of, you know, eventually securing a recommendation, which would stand you in good stead for an LLM, particularly an LLM at an American university. But at the Delhi High Court, to be very frank with you, clerkships were not so popular in the in the strict sense, but they were more popular, if, if I may call it that, amongst people who wanted to apply for the low, for the subordinate judiciary. So people who wanted to, some obviously subordinate judiciary may not be the correct term, but for the district judiciary. So people who wanted to write the examination for the uh, Delhi Judicial Service, they would inevitably take up a clerkship more as, you know, a way to, let's say, learn about the law and then also keep preparing on the side because there was this conception that it's less strenuous than, let's say, going to a lawyer's office which of course is a perception I carried, but then there was a very rude <laughs> awakening once I ultimately got into it. So yeah, so in the Delhi High Court, you know, or I think most very few high courts had clerkship programs then. So I don't think, uh, you know, it was popular in the strict sense of being one of the most in-demand things which you would look at once you were graduating. Like amongst the graduating class, you know, everybody had these sort of expectations, a big law firm, a big senior advocate, clerking with in the Supreme Court. High court was a little, you know, let's say not exactly in the mainstream. Right. So, sir, these days, what I see, the general responsibilities of a clerk are preparing mostly case briefs, helping the judge with his lectures and other connected areas. Were the responsibilities the same back then, especially because in Delhi high court clerkships, as you say, weren't that popular? Right. So I think, you know, it varied remarkably depending on the judge concerned. But yes, as you rightly put it, the basic sense of the scope of the work was effectively to proofread uh, the judgments and orders each day to obviously do a lot of research in terms of assisting the judge with the applicable law. And with certain judges also, you were you know encouraged or you were asked to effectively draft certain portions of a judgment or certain portions of an order, maybe the facts, recapitulating what the councils argued. In some cases, you were even asked to give draft orders. But as far as uh, the judge who I clerked with, uh, Justice Rajiv Sahai and law, my scope was almost uh, entirely research and proofread. So that's what I effectively did. And then, of course, as you rightly said, every now and then, if the judge had some sort of, a, uh, let's say, academic uh, engagement, say a lecture at a law school or at a judge's training academy, then obviously you did the relevant legwork for that as well. Interesting. So there's a lot to unpack in your answer. Uh, so would you recommend that a young law student who wishes to pursue a career in litigation take the opportunity of a clerkship or do you think better learning happens at a lawyer's chamber? Right. See, I think in both sets of categories, whether a lawyer's chamber or a, working with a judge, the learning is obviously, I mean, uh, there, there will be different facets of the law that you are you know, exposed to. But again, see, this will obviously come from a subjective perspective because this is how I began my career. But I really cannot recommend a clerkship enough, uh, especially if it is going to be in a court where you ultimately intend to set up your practice. And again, I, like I said, experiences might vary. There are people who have not had such great experiences in a clerkship for whatsoever reason. I can't comment on that. But I think also it depends on the kind of judge that you get placed with, right? In some cases, you can't really choose. In some, you can. 
So therefore, so for instance, when I worked with Justice Rajiv Sahai and Law, I have all I've written about this also. I have always felt that it was a very transformative experience for me, because how I was, you know, in terms of at a character level, at uh, at a level of how you understood what the profession required of you, the work ethic. I could sense a significant shift which happened after that one year which I spent with him. and uh, aside from that aside from the personal perspective of let's say what what you learn uh, it's also your understanding of how the institution functions right because from a lawyer's chamber you are always going to be viewing the institution from the outside but when you work with a judge you know in a for a year you get an experience or you get an insight into what really happens behind the scenes and when i say what happens behind the scenes you know most people will say wink wink you know <laughs> so you got some contacts there they said that's not what i mean i think it also makes you very alive to the kind of challenges that people on the other side face and uh, so therefore and i think it gives you a some sort of an equilibrium in terms of how you look at the system and how you look at judges because the problem is see with most perspectives with judges either you look at them with slavish you know obsequiousness right like they're like gods <laughs> and the other end is you know that there is complete criticism there's nothing right which they can do so you know i think there is as in most things in life there is that equilibrium in terms of obviously critique criticism is important for a system to ensure it doesn't decay it doesn't stagnate but at the same time being there makes you alive to a lot of the challenges that they face and some of which are like superhuman challenges you know not easy <laughs> with the kind of uh, workload that they encounter with so that i think was also very important at a more latent level that it gives you this sort of uh, you know let's say understanding of what the reality is. so therefore a lot of things subsequently in the profession when things don't work out matters don't reach you know you you're able to take it with a pinch of salt and be magnanimous about it so that from that perspective also extremely important right thanks for sharing your insights on that sir so moving on you then pursued an llm from university of london uh, could you tell us a little bit little bit about what prompted this decision and what was your entire experience like right so i think after a, a, a couple of months with justice enlaw considering I, that i was obviously learning quite a bit and then at that stage for some some reason i really didn't think that it was practical for me to take a year off anytime soon and go to an llm outside so then obviously i was scouting for an llm program which would give me that sort of uh, quality uh, despite doing it say from uh, a model where it was not full time now within india those options were very very limited even today if you want to do a part time sort of llm degree the options are not much of course with pandemic many of them opened up because it's all become virtual but not otherwise so then i decided to undertake an llm from the university of london international programs which gave you the flexibility of writing your exams in the british council in delhi now just as enlaw was that way very kind that when my uh, first semester exams came around i asked him if i could take off like a good chunk of time for almost a month to sit and prepare and he was gracious enough to grant me that so therefore uh, i was able to therefore you know effectively prepare and go ahead with it so nlm therefore as i said i prepared uh, more in the context of wanting to understand uh, arbitration in greater depth because my specialization was international dispute resolution with a focus on arbitration so that is how i went about it and of course the university of london program was uh, the arbitration segment was was designed by queen mary which is amongst the best colleges worldwide in terms of the arbitration program so that's effectively how i approached it because i wanted to do it in india and not take a year off 
right yeah that, that's interesting sir uh, sir about llms it is often said that uh, those who wish to pursue a career in litigation an llm can be an unnecessary endeavor what do you think about that would you still recommend that students take up an llm program who who wish to pursue litigation right so i think uh, an llm is definitely worthwhile in the sense of the larger focus or the more let's say enhanced focus it is able to get you in terms of the specialized areas of law within which you might choose to do your llm because llbs in our country of course you may have ba llb bba llb and all of that but ultimately it's a generalized sort of uh, training program uh, dehors those few electives or you know other seminars which you may take in the llb program so therefore if you want to really specialize or get a more specialized understanding of a particular area of law llm is definitely worthwhile but one issue with an llm is a lot of people believe that because you have an llm you have an extra tag or an extra brand and therefore it will necessarily you know into some some way catapult you to great heights in the profession that is a completely wrong understanding because frankly speaking llm phd dfil none of this matters in court in court you are as good as the last order you got so each day you need to effectively struggle and prove yourself so therefore of course like i said it's a matter of perception somebody may think you are more learned because you have an llm or you may have a phd so that's a matter of perception but on the ground level unless you know you really perform at the base level of being a good lawyer with an llb then an llm or a phd to that extent in the profession don't really help because a lot of people have that misnomer that you know i have this extra cloak on top of yeah. me because i did an llm or a phd i don't think it works that way in court right thanks for sharing that sir moving on um, how did you get interested in litigation sir was that always the plan or did it happen somewhere along the way yeah so it was a very naive sort of understanding of what litigation required so see i always like love debating so even in law school that way i never really did any moots i never mooted i only did parliamentary debating so i went across the country different universities and colleges doing parliamentary debates so my perspective of being a lawyer was you know all about the grandiose argument you know cicero is that way the role model right you know just stand up and just flummox everyone you know just completely obliterate the opposition because of how you speak and that's what we are fed fed in popular culture also because unless you really experience a trial or argue a matter in court in most of our popular culture depictions of courtrooms are entirely structured around the oral argument so if you ask me why i don't to litigate it's a very childish <laughs> naive answer because i thought wow you know you get to argue in court it's good fun so <laughs> that's precise that's exactly if you ask me why <clears throat> i thought litigation would be a good fit as a, opposed to say you know like doing transactional work or working say in house so but, but of course that, I, i mean as you would know already after <laughs> very brief time that's not exactly you know what litigation requires but yes it's a learning curve but yeah that's the honest answer in terms of why i wanted to litigate true um so sir i was reading an interview that you uh, took online and uh, i read that you were a junior counsel for about 3 years and before moving uh, as your set before setting up your independent practice so can right. you tell us a little bit about your initial uh experiences as a young lawyer and what was it like litigating yeah so see i i in that sense i was quite fortunate in the sense that so my father has a extensive used to have a very extensive arbitration uh, centric practice 
so at that stage effectively immediately after i quit the clerkship since anyway i had a good interest in arbitration i thought that at that stage since he was transitioning almost entirely into a full fledged arbitration practice i therefore decided to uh, join him so for a good 3 years therefore it was almost entirely arbitration work i mean maybe i would have done one or two matters which were let's say outside of arbitration but therefore it was a good grounding in terms of what uh, you know arbitration required so i spent about 3 years with my father and then after about 3 years when i had like to a certain extent done maybe about two or three arbitrations from start to finish i decided to try and uh, take a leap outside so therefore that obviously was a slightly difficult time see as i mentioned being a second generation lawyer you have a huge amount of advantages so mm-hmm. i am the last person who you should be asking me about in terms of how it was as a you know a young lawyer because the first generation lawyers my peers the people who've come before me they are the ones who really struggled so yeah. whatever i say is going to sound like candy floss to them <laughs> whatever so called challenges i mention is not going to be worth anything but uh, you know just just in terms of the insecurity yeah. because that i think i mean even if you come from that relative sense of advantage there is obviously a feeling of insecurity when you first start out in the profession because as you see in our litigation system because of the kind of pendency etc which we experience it is complete chaos like when you go to a court now obviously it's less chaotic in the high court maybe even more less chaotic in the supreme court but at all levels there is chaos lawyers running around matters being called judges being harried with i don't know how many matters in a day it's madness but it's organized chaos right it's a well oiled machine every person so when you enter court like for the first time you see lawyers running mad, maddeningly left to right judges dictating orders called to passovers adjournment so even though it's chaotic it's like everybody has a space or a place in that machine and you are the odd one out because you're just standing there watching this universe in motion <laughs> and you know there is some weird force which is keeping it together stopping it from completely exploding but you have no idea what that is so that is something which i felt that all of us experience because when you first go out there and there's no protective cover of a senior or somebody suddenly you realize what am i doing here will i ever be able to do anything worthwhile so that i think is there but ultimately you know that's a good part i think at least that's what i felt in the delhi high court i'm sure that's replicated across the country is that judges especially when you are young when you are a very young lawyer they they do tend to you know let you get away with a lot of idiotic you know nonsense <laughs> of course being rude being arrogant that is obviously frowned upon but you know a lot of silly mistakes which you might make you know like complete uh, completely fallacious things you may do in terms of the art of advocacy i have had like some very very kind judges who in the initial part of the career you know even though if i was talking complete bumcum you know would basically guide you or effectively you know let's say come and protect you when there was a very cantankerous senior lawyer on the other side breathing down your neck yeah. so that i think was was really nice plus ultimately you know there is always that sense of affection as that new blood in the profession etc so that 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 obviously balances a lot of this out uh, but again like i said there are some days when you know you don't have a good day for some reason the matter doesn't work out the client is unhappy etc so these these are but ultimately i think the most difficult part is trying to ensure that there is no existential crisis right and that 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 is you know that that is always lingering at least in the initial years of the profession right. so that at least which i thought was you know one part of the experience which i think most people will to an extent uh, share 
indeed so sir uh, you went independent after 3 years of being a junior i understand that everybody's experiences are their own but what do you think is the right time for a lawyer to go independent after being a junior right see i think ultimately the right time is effectively if you are able to ensure that there is at least some work which will come your way to keep yourself occupied see money obviously is an important criterion but see as money is something which at least in the initial years of the profession is not something you can take as a given and i when i say money i mean generating money completely independently from your own let's say clientele or whatever is the feeder base that you have in court so after 3 years in the profession what ultimately happened is there were a few a couple of lawyers uh, in the high court etc who you know used to reach out to me for their arbitration related work it was not for arguing matters in court but something fundamental like just looking over an soc asking for some recent case law on arbitration you know some sort of basic sort of a consultancy and then of course in the few years that i had done work with my father i had obviously developed some links in the existing clientele and which i was able to then further generate in terms of other work yeah so at that stage i was in a position where i knew that not only could i continue some of the work which i was doing at the same time i could also bring in work from other quarters so at that stage i thought that it would not be a situation where i would be sitting let's say you know without any work to do for most of the week which can be a problem in sometimes so therefore i thought all right let's let's try and see and i also wanted to branch out uh, more into areas outside arbitration so by then if you include the clerkship accepted almost almost been about 5 years uh, you know by right. at the time when i decided to become independent so therefore uh, these are the criteria it works differently there are some people who suddenly land a panel like i know uh, colleagues of mine who got a panel let's say with a government entity or with a public sector and that panel was good enough on its own to yeah. be able to sustain a basic level of income or work so it it's a completely differential thing it's about how you are able to pull that off whether it's a panel whether it's networking with other lawyers generating clientele internally so that, that that's really the, the the most important and there is never a right time because as long as you stay with an institution or with somebody else there is always that level of security right so the money which is coming in or the cases which are coming in so it's always a leap of faith but it's much harder for a first generation lawyer so as i said i'm sure you'll have some very very good people who've done a lot of good work but first generation lawyers who i think will answer this much much better than i can right again thanks a lot for that sir so another question about litigation is that which is the right forum to start from it is often said that you know you must get some trial experience before moving to the appeal courts um delhi high court has an original site so that can offer some experience of trial courts within the delhi high court what is your opinion of a young lawyer starting out where where should he or she start his or her career from yeah so this is a very very controversial area see i think it entirely again depends on who you ask yeah see i know that that's the thing no there is no real mantra in this profession i know of lawyers who've started out primarily in the supreme court and have now spent 11 12 years only in the supreme court but are doing exceptionally well there is a counter also people started in the supreme court and today you know if they try to decide to go for a trial they are completely lost they have no idea what is happening then you have people who've started at the trial court level spent 15 20 years there but then ultimately even then when they say come to the supreme court they feel a huge handicap in terms of a lot of things so ultimately i think it depends on one what is your real area of what you what do you want to do see if you want to be an appellate lawyer if you want to be a supreme court lawyer 
I really don't think it is such a huge loss for you to start in the Supreme Court. Now, I want it to be, say, you know, a commercial, uh, somebody with more of an outlook on commercial law, because I wanted to specialize in that area. So arbitration, commercial law. So for me, going to the Supreme Court would have been suicidal because I wouldn't have learned anything which I could have used today, you know, cross-examination, drafting original pleadings, etc. So therefore, that for me was an, uh, absolutely, you know, like a no-go. But then again, like I said, somebody who wants to do a criminal law practice would never know, never do what I did because I stuck to the high court. I did arbitration work. But if I, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, that was suicidal. I would have had to go to the lower courts, to the district courts, right? To do, uh, let's say, criminal trial. So I think, of course, the general knowledge is, notion is that, no, you must do everything. But I think as long as you are able to keep a mix and match, for instance, even as a Supreme Court lawyer, you can always associate with a lawyer to do trial work say, do a couple of trials with a lawyer in the district court or in the high court. Similarly, if you're a district court lawyer, do a couple of these uh, SLPs in the Supreme Court from start to finish. So there are ways of supplementing, you know, your knowledge base. But now increasingly, we are living in a world of at least specialization in the initial phases of the career. So therefore, I don't think there is any real, you know, like all encompassing sort of formula, which one might get. The only thing is, yes, it is always good as a lawyer to be as holistic in your understanding of the law as possible. So for that, the wider the range of experiences you get, the better. But as I said, you know, it's not therefore necessary that you must start with the trial court, then go to the high court, then go to the Supreme Court. That I think is too formulaic in nature. And it ignores, you know, the dynamic nature of the profession today. Right. That's a very interesting take. Thanks for sharing that, sir. Now, sir, also while being a litigating lawyer, you did a PhD, which is thought a PhD is generally thought to be the exclusive domain of academics. So what (laughs) got you interested in a PhD and what was it like managing such a comprehensive PhD degree with litigation? Right. So see, ultimately the, the entire basis of, see, as I said, I've always had a slight, uh, you know, let's say interest in uh, to a certain extent research and academics. Though of course not at the level of a full-fledged academician. I shouldn't even, it'll be, I'm sure an academician will be ashamed <laughs> if I said that what I do is academics, but uh, you know, generally in terms of sustained research work or uh, especially once you do start doing arbitrations, you know, when you grapple with the record, etc. So a PhD was something which I had in mind. And see, my thing was that ultimately in the initial years of the profession, you are not that busy. See, all of us pretend like we are busy all the time, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, the ground reality is we all have stages where we are very jobless and there are times when you are really busy. So at least in the initial years, the, the joblessness phase is far longer than the busy phase. So at that stage, uh, NLU Delhi had just come out with its, I think we were the first batch and they were one of the few universities that were full, properly offering a part-time PhD. So the, otherwise, in a lot of other places, that's not possible, technically. So then, since that was an option, I decided to try and see if that could be done. And then, as I said, that time, the work pressure in terms of the profession was not that bad. So therefore, I decided, you know, just to maybe further take forward my interest in research and then explore a different area. So I didn't do my PhD in uh, arbitration or commercial laws. I did it in uh, minority rights, in group rights, in jurisprudence. So I thought, you know, maybe I, I'll be able to look at something different, read something different, because by then in the profession, it was very, let's say, uh, uh, insular, the kind of work which I was doing. It's all arbitration, commercial. I love doing it, but, you know, it was very straight bracketed. So therefore, that is one of the one of the major motivations, you know, for the PhD at that stage. And then ultimately, when you have the comfort of being able to do it part time, yeah, then I thought, why not? 
indeed so sir looking back do you think your phd and your llm have had some significant contributions in your practice and your litigation uh, your chamber practice in that sense or do you think well it just added to my academic knowledge and not really of practical relevance what's your take on that see if you ask me personally definitely you know that the, the that that entire experience of writing that thesis you know that it's not easy so therefore that sustained prolonged detailed exercise definitely prepares you better uh, in terms of collating a lot of information structuring your thoughts because for instance prior to the phd i don't think i used to write a lot i never wrote much but after the phd happened i think that that way also i gained the confidence to write write articles write opinion pieces so that way definitely that that entire you know experience really helped in me getting that sort of confidence uh but uh, if you ask me from the litigation perspective see again like i said i don't think it helps so much see it's a matter of perception there'll be some i know like when i started counsel practice there were some uh, lawyers who came to me with brief saying sir aapki phd hai isliye client man gaya theek hai i don't know i don't know what the client thought or what the client's understanding of you know litigation practice is he probably thought oh this doc lawyer has a phd no problem let me engage him so but yeah so that i am not complaining i am definitely not complaining but i am just letting you know you know that there is really no logic behind it but as in lot of things in life sometimes you know you have these ancillary benefits of having said done a phd because there's a doc- doctor next to your name but if you ask me practically speaking again like an llm does it help you in terms of acceptability larger acceptability in court or not i don't think so i really don't think so but yes latently these definitely help you know that 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 experience what you went through the kind of sources you looked at definitely it helps no doubt about it so it's not something i would say is a waste Yeah. but the only problem is in in india you know almost everything we do we have this checklist ye kiya to mereko ye milega if i do this this is what i will get so you know it, so it's not like getting like one of those qualifications where you're qualified as say an arbitrator or something you know it's not something like that so if you don't see it from that perspective you don't have a utilitarian clock next to it saying okay now this is what i will get <laughs> then yes definitely but a lot of people do that and then get disappointed saying why have an llm why aren't people taking me seriously why did a phd why aren't people taking me seriously in court it doesn't work that way right doesn't work that way. thanks sir so moving on now you also write a very interesting column for bar and bench and you also write other opinion pieces how did it all start i mean you did mention briefly that post the phd you started writing more and more but how did this in review section for bar and bench start and how do you go about identifying the most important judgments of the delhi high court right so see first i must confess that in the last few months the in review piece has been extremely irregular because of a lot of professional commitments etc i unfortunately have not been able to do it so you know i shouldn't be taking credit for it hopefully i will get back you know to form in some time but yeah right now is obviously the piece hasn't been as regular as i would have liked it to be but yeah in terms of the inspiration for it see again again that is one of the takeaways from my clerkship see so justice enlaw was somebody extremely uh let's say uh, with a with a very very significant emphasis on precedent yeah now therefore he was not somebody you know who wanted to just write an order or a judgment just like that on first principles of course he decided on first principles but each and every judgment he gave he ensured that his conclusions were backed up by the relevant uh, precedent so therefore you know to survive as a law clerk in his chamber not knowing what the re- latest case law was you know you simply couldn't survive 
so therefore i sort of picked up a habit in the evening of sitting on the computer and you know spending about half an hour every day in the evening looking at the high court website and at that stage that was an advantage because our delhi high court website even in 2009 or 10 it was reasonably up to date wow. judgments used to get uploaded pretty frequently and even today that is not the case in multiple high courts across the country but in the delhi high court even way back in 2009 10 that was the case so therefore you know after some time it becomes a habit after a year of doing it even though after i left uh, justice end law it continued as a habit and it good to stood me in good stead in courts because you know when you were able to cite the latest case law even if you are a very young lawyer judges took you more seriously so therefore uh, that started so then ultimately anyway i used to do this spend about half an hour 45 minutes every day reading up the latest judgments on the delhi high court website so at one point i thought that uh, why don't i start putting it down on paper and the biggest reason for that was because i used to be very lazy about reading judgments in criminal law and tax because i i wouldn't understand understand them so it was i was too lazy to take the effort so i would only read writ side original side you know all of those civil law elements dehorse tax and criminal law so then the column was also a way to force me to read these judgments otherwise i would be too lazy so it was also an internal exercise of ensuring that i step out of my comfort zone so that was primarily how it started and then also the kind of wealth of precedent that the high court generates i thought that you know very little of it was being captured because of the uh, limitations in terms of of course the size of the journals etc nowadays you know the journals like if you take an air sec or they are really not able to capture the the wide breadth of precedent especially which comes from the high courts yeah. so that was also one more reason so that you know people are and let's say more up to date with what the high court is doing because we have a lot of good judgments every month uh, you know which is like really path breaking in all areas of law and when you say in terms of you know how i determine see the in review piece that way if you see just from its length you know we don't really curate in that sense of what is important or what is not so important of course judgments which don't say anything in the sense that they are settlements or if they are mere withdrawals or if the ju- judge has merely noted that in the facts of this case i am doing so then we will obviously not cover that but almost every judgment which does deal with some area of law which does debate or deliberate on some principle of law is included so therefore if you ask me in terms of the uploaded judgments a good 85% of them effectively get covered uh right and i do hope you get back to writing the in review yeah, yeah. very soon so <laughs> because a lot of us especially yeah. the students benefit from it greatly no 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 thank you so much for your kind words definitely i i will from next month i will try and get back to it definitely sir so so moving on i'll just quickly come to the final set of questions that i have now so you've been an independent counsel for a while now do you still get nervous while arguing Oh yes see that's as i said no see i think at every stage in life when you look at a lawyer your first impression is you know this man is unflappable or this woman is unflappable you know how do they do this yeah. but you know that's what i think uh, i think a lot of us should be more forthright and frank and uh, when i speak to some of you know these seniors you would be surprised at how frank and forthright they are see butterflies in the stomach in the morning in court i think is something which is natural for a lot of people there are some people who might be immune to it there are some i think who are immune to it but i think for the vast majority including yours truly definitely there are butterflies in the stomach and i'll tell you butterflies in the stomach is not in terms of the fear of the judge it's not the fear the fear you know in terms of addressing doesn't i think survive after some time but you know sometimes you get some really bad cases really bad cases so therefore <laughs> you know in that case the expectation from the from the client or the briefing counsel 
and you sometimes when you read the brief you know obviously you do not you should not identify with the brief beyond a point but you know you might think that oh this was a good case or this gentleman or this lady who's come to you they, they you know justice is justice should be done to them but for some reason the law is completely against him or they were not bothered with the record so the record is now completely you know completely one sided against them so you have an uphill task so that you know pressure definitely is there but that's part of the adrenaline that when despite all that when you're able to overcome and the judge agrees and you know and then you know you have like an astounding victory in court that's part of the you know the excitement so if that initial element of that uh, the butterflies in the stomach is not there then you know obviously that payout in terms of that uh, you know that great excitement or joy when you win a matter that's also not there so therefore you know that is uh, one of the aspects so therefore yeah so anybody who tells you no no why should you care or anything i don't think that's the case for anybody who is you know committed and who's uh, let's say really concerned about what is going to happen in court definitely there'll be butterflies but one thing which which happens is that initially what happens in your career is uh, let's say you have two cases in a week so you will spend 3 to 4 days thinking about that case what will the judge ask me yeah. judge may ask me this he may ask me that Uh, she may you know ask me why what about this particular uh, admission you've made but now after a point when you have two matters in court three matters in court in a day then naturally that pressure also subdivides i don't think it multiplies it subdivides because there's only this much pressure which your body <laughs> can take in a day so if you have five cases those five cases will take it away one by one by one so that's what people say you know like these really the big lawyers who have 10 cases a day 15 cases a day people say they don't have time to worry <laughs> because you know <laughs> because there's no time you don't even know what the judge has said you know sometimes you, you you've seen it like in when you in your internship some of the big lawyers you know the minute they are they are rushing to the next court there's no time to even digest what's happened did i that's for the briefing lawyer to digest did he win did he lose yeah so that that's part of it that's true wonderful in fact you know i've had the wonderful opportunity and this is for my viewers to watch amit sir argue in delhi high court and if you're ever in court and see sir arguing do it in the court and listen to him it's a wonderful wonderful experience no no, no. so no but now so therefore you also know and each of those moments <laughs> there were butterflies in my stomach <laughs> <laughs> right and so sir just the final set of questions yeah looking back sir at your trajectory are there some mistakes that you think litigation lawyers could have avoided and should avoid yes see definitely see now for instance when i look back uh, like at my time uh, in the profession so for instance one thing which i somewhat regret is i wish i had done a little bit of criminal trial in my initial years right because even though i ensured that i don't get a straight bracketed let's say only in arbitration after the first 4 5 years but the one area where you know i always felt a bit of remorse is that i couldn't do criminal trial because i thoroughly enjoy civil trials of course in the high court we don't really get to do them so much anymore because unfortunately of the kind of pendency that we experience full fledged trials now i mean you know unless we have a huge uptick in the number of judges it's not so easy in the high court anymore because largely it's only arguments on interim applications etc even at the original side cross is now significantly whittled down though of course it happens but uh, you know it's not center stage as it used to be yeah. and uh, but in arbitrations you still have a lot of cross so i re- thoroughly enjoy that so i wish i could have had that experience or replicated it in a criminal trial also so that's a very personal sort of you know uh, let's say regret that i have so that's in at least from my perspective that's uh, pretty much it but see otherwise i i see from a macro perspective you know the mistakes that we make every mistake under the 
son can be made and yeah. that you are all aware you know you you well aware of there are lawyers who get sidetracked you know uh, there are uh, lawyers effectively who uh, i think burn out too early then uh, as i mentioned there are lawyers who get get a lot of cynicism about the system and i am not saying the cynicism is misplaced See, nobody here is saying that you know everything is hunky dory but as i mentioned you know that that belief that there are good people in the system the belief that despite certain incidents ultimately the system is one which can validate uh, you know the law as such as we know it in a utopian context so that sort of fundamental confidence the belief in the system unfortunately you will see a lot of lawyers losing that and that will manifest in different ways there will be people who will get disgruntled who will leave the profession there'll be those then who will say up oh, there's no point in researching there's no point ultimately you know we all know it's all uh, done in some other way so then people move on to different areas etc you know better than me uh, you know in the, because in terms of say the conversations that you might have had with your peers like some of them will have a very cynical outlook now and one just hopes that after some time in the profession that outlook changes for the better and that one retains that faith in the system so therefore uh, you know so these are some of the issues see as i said one should not be slavish to the extent of saying that you know we live in some sort of paradise yeah. and that the system is the best there are problems i have written about issues which have happened in the judiciary but uh, you know if if all of us have that sort of notion that it's all gone there's no point then uh, you know there's nothing worth fighting for anymore so that i think is you know something which i thought that existential crisis i have seen with a lot of people and you know we flirt with it every day you have a couple of bad days and suddenly you think what what is happening why am i here so that that i think is something which is very real right thanks for that very honest take sir and the final question is something that i ask all the guests who've been on letter of law sir i do see an extremely beautiful law library behind you so do you have any recommendations oh, yeah. for our viewers and any books that you think our viewers should take up Mm, right so see ultimately when it comes to law books uh, you know for a lawyers library a library can never be let's say too large because you know the the the, the scope is unlimited you've seen a law school library right i mean technically right. a lawyers library should be 10 times that much technically speaking but uh, yeah so therefore uh, see at least in terms of the books see i don't think i have any real like favorites per se you have all the classics so if you have say contracts you will have a chitty if you will have arbitration then of course you have the well known treatises within uh, india you have just as hindu malhotra's uh, book on arbitration then internationally obviously you have a lot of uh, texts like gary bond etc so see i think at least in terms of uh, the general uh, let's say readings uh, i think you know all all the standard texts are there and i don't think i have any particular favorites among them but uh if if i slightly digress and um, i think in terms of generally the law as such right. i think the most uh, uh, fascinating readings which i have ever done also i think because they are more contemporary contemporary in nature as compared to some of his uh, the people who came before him is uh, ronald dawkins right. so uh, dawkins books i think uh, you know really i mean they were for me quite uh, an experience in terms of even though it's written from an academic perspective but even as a practitioner a lot of the things that dawkin writes about including the role of judges the role of lawyers is something which i thought was uh, you know it, it's something which is quite uh, i mean it's quite uh, thought awakening when you read it so that is something i would especially law as empire that especially i think is a seminal work and purely from a practitioner's perspective as i said you know i am not really someone who 
can aspire to the level of theoretical analysis that a proper academic or a philosopher might do but from a practitioner's perspective also a lawyer's empire is a brilliant read definitely in fact ronald walken has been a repetitive recommendation on the channel so to our viewers i think now is the time to read ronald walken but that's yeah, right yeah. yeah and i'm so sorry and another book which i always recommend is uh, leela justice leela sait's autobiography so you have a lot of autobiographies yeah absolutely in the profession but uh, if you want the perfect balance between a, a, a poignant life a wonderful years spent in the profession and you know the general experience of being a lawyer and a judge in india before you know we reach the 21st century i think it's beautiful because there are some exceptional legal autobiographies in the country we all know of them satyabad hidayatullah etc but i think they all have a you know let's say a very overt focus on the person as a lawyer which is of course important but that's why this is leela said's autobiography i think is slightly different because uh, you know the, the person you actually get to meet the person right which is not the case in most of the autobiographies because you get to meet the lawyer or the judge but with justice leela said you first get to meet the person and then you see that person transform into a lawyer and then a judge that's the beauty of that book so yeah i can't recommend that highly enough i agree and sir i think with this we can come to an end of today's conversation thank you so very much for taking the time out and speaking with me i got to learn so much and i'm sure our viewers would benefit from your insights greatly No, no. Thank you so much, Atha, for having me over. It's very nice to, you know, sort of revise all of this because then I think it's also a good way to go down memory lane and then, you know, sort of just look back over the years. So thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thanks, sir. So I'll just stop.